Good evening. Violence in Peru heats up with calls for genocide investigations. The history of FBI attacks on progressives. The latest targets are pan-African groups. The cops surveil a concert in Harlem and unlicensed smoke shops in New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday morning, January 24th, 2023. Four members of the Oath Keepers were convicted Monday of seditious conspiracy in the January 6, 2021 attempted coup at the United States Capitol. It was the second major trial of fascist supporters of former President Donald Trump accused of forcibly trying to keep him in power. The verdict comes weeks after a different jury convicted the group's leader, Stuart Rhodes, in the attack that halted the certification of President Joe Biden's victory. The Justice Department is also trying to secure sedition convictions against the former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, and four of his associates. A conviction on the rarely used sedition charge carries up to 20 years in prison. The Justice Department has charged nearly a thousand people in the riot, with more charged each week. Three other Oath Keepers have pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy and agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in the hopes of getting a lighter sentence. They're among about 500 people who have pleaded guilty to riot-related charges. In international news, Peru's top prosecutor's office says it has launched an inquiry into new president Dina Boluarte and members of her cabinet to investigate allegations of genocide after recent violent clashes. Meanwhile, unions in Peru say they have no intention of scaling back the protests, demanding the resignation of Boluarte and immediate general elections. There have been more than 50 deaths, including children and nearly a thousand injuries since December, when the former president, Pedro Castillo, was booted from office. In related news, Castillo ally Evo Morales, the former Bolivian president who was banned from entering Peru on Monday, has also called for an end to what he says is the genocide of our indigenous brothers. Meanwhile, Peruvian police invaded San Marcos University with armored vehicles, arresting large numbers of farmers who had joined students in the protests against the regime. Peruvian journalist Francesca Emanuel says the unrest is a result of Peru's bitterly divided society. Peru is an extremely segregated country where the economic and political elites live only in Lima, from where they run the country. And they are excluding the rest, not only with economic neglect, but also with constant racist attacks that are normalized by the media and by the politicians. The indigenous and the poor from rural areas are second-class citizens, the root of this protest. So there were huge protests in the capital last Friday following a general strike, and those protests were brutally repressed by the police. Police even caused a huge fire in the center of Lima. The building was set on fire by tear gas canisters. Of course, despite the evidence, the Peruvian government says that the fire was set by protesters, but the owner of the building denies it because he even saw how the building was set on fire by the canisters. A few days ago, the prosecutor's office said that it was launching an investigation against the president and her prime minister for genocide. However, various human rights organizations have denounced this investigation, saying that it won't bring justice. These human rights organizations say that investigation on genocide is a way of condemning the investigation to failure since there is no precedent for a ruling on genocide in the jurisprudence in Peru. 
on Saturday, something happened that had not happened since the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori in the 90s. The universities were intervened by police and many students were disappeared. Last Saturday, 400 police officers raided a public university in Lima, eh, La Universidad Nacional de San Marcos, where dozens of rural protesters were staying, hosted by students. And the police smashed down the gates with tanks and fired tear gas. And 200 people were arrested and detained for 24 hours in humane conditions. The detention was also extremely traumatic. There are videos where you can see indigenous Peruvians, poor people from the rural areas, lying face down on the ground and beaten by the police. The idea that you needed a party and a leader and a chairman and all those kind of things in order to turn these kind of protests into something that'll be more than just protests. What do people feel about that? Yeah, definitely. These protests are genuine people going to the streets because they reject the government and the authorities that are ruling the country. At least 70% of the Peruvians reject these authorities, according to recent polls. But it's true that there is a need for some leadership in order to organize this huge discontent and to be able to win the next elections. The right wing and the extreme right don't recapture the government and the executive branch and the Congress. Because nowadays, the party system in Peru has only 12 parties that are most of them from the right and the extreme right. We have elections tomorrow. It's very likely that these authorities that people are rejecting on the street will win again and will run again these countries. Unfortunately, 30 years of neoliberal governments we have had in Peru has killed the possibility of social movements and organizations to be able to be represented in the democratic system. Any of these people uh, involved with Donald Trump on the scene, Steve Bannon or Roger Stone or Michael Flynn or any of these Trump people down there? They were not directly involved, but they, for example, were supported by Cuban-American organizations here in the U.S. In fact, when Castillo won, there was a delegation of politicians who came to Washington, D.C. to say that these elections were fraudulent that, of course, are close to Donald Trump. The strategy they used to claim that the elections in 2021 were fraudulent, it was copy-paste strategy from Donald Trump. Peruvian journalist Francesca Emanuel. Peru's attorney general said Tuesday it was investigating Boliarte, Prime Minister Alberto Atarola, Defense Minister Jorge Chavez, and Interior Minister Victor Rojas on charges of genocide, qualified homicide, and serious injuries. On Saturday, members of the African Revolutionary Organization, known as the Uhuru Movement, and the African People's Socialist Party held an emergency meeting to discuss attacks by the FBI and Justice Department against left-wing dissident groups. The Uhuru Movement has been accused by prosecutors of collaborating with an alleged Russian foreign agent. The group supports Russia in its war with Ukraine. In a recent statement, the group says it expects new attacks and indictments any day. At this weekend's emergency meeting, African People's Socialist Party Chairman Omali Yeshitela had this to say. They come up with the bogus claim that somehow we don't work for black people, we work for Russians. That somehow Africa is a racist thing and you have to say that. We have to say it over and 
over and over again. We got the racist Democratic Party, the racist uh, Joe Biden, uh, who claims to be so much for black people, but would come out with this trope that African people are so stupid that we have to have somebody else tell us that we are oppressed and that we have to fight. African People's Socialist Party Chairman Omali Yeshitela. One of the speakers at the emergency meeting was Professor Ward Churchill, the controversial educator who was fired from his job at the University of Colorado after complaints over his use of the term Little Eichmanns to describe some of the victims of the World Trade Center attack. Churchill co-authored two books on surveillance and dirty tricks by the FBI. And he says what's happening to the Uhuru movement has happened in the past. This is not something specific to this election context, okay? They've been doing this since before I was born. You can date it back. Communist Party USA, for example, every election they attempted to participate or did participate in, they were targeted for discrediting by the FBI quietly with friendly or cooperating journalists, as they called it. The Socialist Workers Party, same deal. Anybody that was running, whether you agreed with them or not, were running on the basis of ideological, as they would describe it, opposition to the status quo in the U.S. Not Democratic or Republican, but something fundamentally different in concept or in principle. We're all targeted for being discredited, which has something to do with the strength of the so-called two-party system. You're a third party worthy of the name, can't get off the ground because officially, quietly, covertly even, they were targeted for elimination. We just passed uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, it would have been his 94th birthday, and Jager Hoover's Mm -hmm. hatred of Martin Luther King, absolute personal hatred that he then used the entire governmental apparatus of the United States to target this man because he personally hated him. There's a possibility here that this is a sort of self-loathing and it's multi-layered. Chairman Yeshitela and other followers of his organization have been targeted because they don't toe the line on the war in Ukraine and Russia. Not even necessarily a matter of whose side you're on. I'm not, frankly, intimately uh, familiar with the Uhuru movement's position with regard to Ukraine or the current leadership of uh, what used to be the Soviet Union, any of it. But it's also irrelevant. It's not like they're hiding anything as near as I can tell, nor is there even an accusation. It's just that the positions they're taking constitute being unregistered agents of a foreign power. I'm not sure how that translates at all. To be an agent of a foreign power in this scenario means to uh, advocate sport positions taken. And uh, one might want to consider portions of the Jewish community and the organizations thereof that uh, have considerable while now been in full-fledged support of Israel, no matter what its policy is. Does that make them unregistered agents of Israel? If so, how about criminal proceedings? Symbology, the symbols that are put forth publicly on a routine basis, that's important. The campaign posing Columbus Day, that was important. Taking down Confederate flags, Confederate monuments, renaming military bases, that were named for the 
<laughs> a particular group of uh, traders. Significant for perhaps, could be significant for transforming consciousness, but the way it's used is that tangible material problems, the structural problems of this country are packaged in stepping on CRT and the teaching of accurate history and all of that on the one hand, and the removal of symbols are designed to create the impression in the body politic that the issues have been addressed in a favorable sense. The problems no longer exist because the symbolic change has been affected. And the symbolic change really materially affected nothing at all. Whether you call Fort Bragg, Fort Bragg, or call it Fort Martin Luther King, doesn't really change the function of the fort, you follow concessions that are made by the status quo to preserve the status quo and anything more substantive than that's going to be addressed in the way Amalia Satella and the Uhuru movement are at this very moment being addressed and the way people who have serious, fundamental, one would say radical in the sense that the word means the root of the problem to change the basis of white supremacism seems the basis of fascist corporate interface. Corporatism is what Italian fascism rounded branded itself during the nineteen twenties and thirties. A term which is really without owner in the society as a result of the indoctrination and the, the nature of mainstream discourse and that's what's to be preserved as a rationale. Protecting the doing of business as usual in the United States. Professor Ward Churchill. In more news, a former high-ranking FBI counterintelligence official who investigated Russian oligarchs has been indicted on charges he violated U.S. sanctions against Russia. Special Agent Charles McGonigal was based in New York. According to an indictment released Monday, he worked with a Russian billionaire, Oleg Deripaska, referred to in code as the big guy. McGonigal was charged with violating and conspiring to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, conspiring to commit money laundering and money laundering. This month, celebrations marked what would have been Martin Luther King Jr.'s 94th birthday. With Black History Month arriving in February, a little-known side of King has come to light, his commitment to the anti-war movement at the height of the U.S. conflict against Vietnam. Jared Ball is professor of communication and African studies at Baltimore's Morgan State University. He says King's legacy wouldn't be complete without his contribution to world peace. started a little bit beforehand. In fact, there had been a, a number of efforts to curtail his ever-increasing radicalism and condemnation of the war in Vietnam and U.S. aggression abroad. He had been warned as early as, well, really, right after the 1963 speech March on Washington, William Sullivan had already tagged him on behalf of the FBI as the number one threat in bringing the Negro over to communism. That had been a constant concern. Of course, it was written about in the counterintelligence papers as well, that it was a concern King was heading in that direction. But to your point, yes, I think that there are strands within the black liberation struggle and civil rights struggle that were anti-war. But those strands, as King found out, as he increasingly took that position, were marginalized and condemned by the mainstream civil rights establishment and the mainstream press. 
which is why King, at the end of his life, was not the loved, revered man that we claim he was today, or claim he is today. He was much maligned and targeted for marginalization because of those increasingly radical politics. All King had to do was stick to civil rights. King realized, as he said very clearly in his own lifetime, that civil rights, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, was insufficient in addressing the material conditions that black people continue to suffer. In fact, he said th those passage of those acts was like rushing the football to the 50-yard line and claiming touchdowns. As King moved north with his struggle in the summers of 66 and 67, as he became increasingly clear of the machinations of capital and capitalism, it was impossible for him to accept the limited focus on civil rights because as he became ever more overtly clear that the problems facing black people here in the United States are intimately linked to the oppressive conditions the United States supports abroad. What should the Bernie Sanders and all the different people who are in the last couple of days been touting the life of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, what should they learn from him? What aren't they learning from him? What is there to learn from him? If anyone wants to really honor the man that actually lived, they would have to take increasingly more anti-capitalist positions, anti-war positions. They would have to become more redistributionist in terms of the wealth that we all help create in this society. And they would have to, as he said, create a revolution of values, which doesn't just mean something soft and ethereal, but means an actual redefinition of how value is created and how human beings and labor are valued within society. I'm picking up that last point from a great new book people should all read by uh, Douglas and Loggins called Profit of Discontent. They should also read King's own work, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, and many of the other texts and speeches that he gave in the last years of his life, almost none of which are included in, in the commemorations uh, on national monuments or in much of the mainstream or other press coverage of the man at this time of year. The whole Malcolm X, uh, MLK controversy that they were rivals and didn't like each other and, and the movements behind both men seemed to be at loggerheads for many years afterwards. Was there a, a real difference in what you're talking about? It seems like they were more alike than different. Well, they absolutely were, and they were making attempts to unite and unify and work together. Of course, Malcolm had years earlier become an overt critic of war and imperialism. King had closed the gap in the differences of their politics. Much of it was a disagreement or a difference created by the press, the mainstream press that wanted to promote an early version of Dr. King as a more acceptable form of civil rights as opposed to the more militant form espoused by Malcolm X. But in reality, they were much more similar than they're given credit for, which is why both men were treated almost exactly the same way by the mainstream press, the mainstream civil rights establishment, and I would argue by those behind each of their assassinations. Pretty good friends with Bill Pepper. I interviewed him a few times. His position is King was killed because of this war, anti-war position. I'm very familiar with Pepper's work, and if he is wrong, it's maybe this or that detail and not in the overall approach to that to the assassination. It's hard to look at the evidence. It's hard to look at the amount of surveillance that both King and Malcolm and others were under at the time they were killed. The United States government benefited the most from each man's assassination. They continue to benefit from the most from the rebranding of each of those men and their politics to this day which allowed a vacuum to, to open up into which a lot of false representatives of both men can step in and claim to be upholding either's politics when it's very much not the case. Jared Ball is professor of communication and African studies at Baltimore's Morgan State University. King came out against the war on April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before he was murdered in Memphis. 
and you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In local news, on Saturday night, as music lovers filed out of the Apollo Theater in Harlem after a concert by Drake, they were surprised to see officers of the 28th Precinct filming them. The video of the cops videotaping people went viral, and when Mayor Eric Adams was asked about the incident on Monday, he praised the precinct commander. Thumbs up to that great captain up in the 2A precinct. I know that precinct. I know the captain. He's very community-minded and community-centered, and I commend him for doing so, and I encourage all of my commanding officers to be creative on how we engage uh, with our resident. That was a safe event. It was a large event. Drake back at the Apollo, and uh, we want that. We want our police and community involved, and those who are naysayers, find reason to complain about everything, no matter what you do. They're going to find a reason to complain. That's, that's not reality. Let them keep complaining. The NYPD, which said the content was being used for social media, has been routinely criticized for controversial surveillance practices it's adopted since 9-11. Drake, who is considered one of the biggest rap artists in the industry, delivered what was later described as an intimate performance of his greatest hits at the iconic venue and even closer to home. New York State is opening a cannabis pop-up shop in Greenwich Village. It's the first retail outlet to be run by a person impacted by a marijuana-related conviction. Starting Tuesday, Smacked will operate on Bleecker Street, two blocks south of Washington Square Park, and it's the second legal pot shop after Housing Works Cannabis opened earlier this month on Broadway. But unlicensed storefronts have proliferated throughout the city despite the law. There are about 1,400 unlicensed smoke shops in the city, according to the city sheriff. Last week, the city council held hearings on the problem. An early supporter of the state marijuana policy is State Senator Liz Kruger. She says unlicensed pot shops must be shut down. So we are working with the governor's office to try to pass some laws that will give our law enforcement offices more authority to close down these shops. I want to go on record very clearly today. If you are running one of these illegal shops, you're not going to get a license from us, period, because you know that you're breaking the law and it's not okay. But a young pot activist from the Bronx, Savannah Miles, fired back. She says pot laws are inherently unfair. The distinction between breaking the law and breaking a law that was intentionally designed through the war on drugs to break us is something that we we need to spend more time thinking about. The law was literally designed to harm us. So why would we not continue to break the law if it's not continuing to adhere and adapt to be equitable to the processes and equitable to the people who have been most closely impacted? It has not even been equitable to the card applicants in themselves. All of the dispensaries that are being opening are centered around Manhattan, and there is no conversation about what is going to happen to those in the Bronx. The conversation is kind of silent. But as far as enforcement, the first first community that was brought up by the sheriff was the Bronx. Longtime marijuana activist Dana Beal says he's willing to follow the law as long as he gets his license. He says the city's new approach is a failed policy. Well, you know, knock yourself out. I mean, there's so many, they'll never get them all. I mean, they'll never even get like more than a small fraction of them because of the, the cumbersome nature of the bureaucracy. They should be figuring out how to collect taxes. That should be their thing. And they shouldn't be trying to reform the world. They should be trying to get the money. Instead, they're trying to do this whole thing of setting up an exemplary system. Well, good luck, you know. We, are, on the other hand, just want to get our license. We're trying to get a license for a microgrow as the former Medical Marijuana Buyers Club, the Yippies uh, in alliance with the Black Panther Party, 
of uh, your... What makes you a legacy? Well, the legacy is that back at the beginning of time, there was a marijuana parade in the 70s and the 80s. Meanwhile, the tobacco industry lashed out against Governor Kathy Hochul on Monday. They say the state has a double standard promoting pot while prohibiting flavored tobacco vape products. And that's the news for Tuesday morning, January 24, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.